Hey, it's Sarah. And today's show, I want to remind you to check out the First Take, Her Take podcast, hosted by Charlie Arnold, Kimberly A. Martin, and the great L. Duncan. They spill the tea on their lives while also discussing the hottest stories in sports and pop culture. That's First Take, Her Take. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you're looking for world-class soccer, ESPN Plus is where to find it. The best teams, the biggest stars, and over 20 international leagues and tournaments. La Liga, Bundesliga, MLS, FA Cup, Copa del Rey, and more. Sign up now at ESPNPlus.com. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about, well, whatever the hell I want. Actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here talking to me. Hi, my name is Kevin Brilliant, and my dilemma is I finally reached the point in life where I'm starting to experience all of those old man problems people have always warned me about. Okay, yeah. I mean, old people pains are my wheelhouse. Uh, My athlete body is aging like milk in the sun, which is to say not well. Kevin, this is for you and, and for everyone listening. Number one is yoga. Yoga, 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 yoga. No matter what other exercise you do, no matter what other workouts you like, you will do them all better if you establish a regular yoga routine that's going to lengthen and stretch and align your body. And you can always feel instantly in your yoga practice what's tight, what's sore, whether you have an imbalance on one side or another, and take care of it and address it before you get to further injuries in other sports and activities. So yoga. Also, especially now, keep an eye on how you're working. Now that we're all at home, Tech neck is a very real thing with a dumb name. Um, It's from staring at your phone or your computer. So right now, ask yourself, Am I sitting up straight? Is my neck turtling forward or is it back aligned with my spine? Is my screen at eye level? All of those things kind of add up and they may feel like just a little tiny pain right now or soreness at the end of the day, but they could eventually lead to major, major issues. Please take it from me, a person with two bulging discs and endless physical therapy bills. Do not ignore your back pain, especially, by the way, my skinny folks out there, people who have not done much physical activity in life, or if you're not skinny, you just have never done physical activity either. I usually find it's the people that kind of get to be fit looking without having to put in the work. They finally start to embrace movement as they get older because their body needs it and they are hurting. They don't know how to move their bodies. They don't know how to embrace exercise. So do it now. Don't wait. It's going to catch up to you. And it's going to be more than just back pain. So yeah, get moving, everybody, and do yoga. It's the best. That's what she said. Today, it's the return of one of my favorite guests I've had on the pod, and you guys all loved him, too. He joined the Chicago Bulls in 2015, now is the Director of Business Strategy and Analytics, a role that combines behavioral science, analytics, and fan engagement. He came on the podcast a few years ago um, and just honestly blew all of our minds. And I wanted to have him back to talk about the effects of COVID on sports and business, innovations during COVID that are probably here to stay, reacting to the changing habits of fan bases, particularly season ticket holders, the importance of what he calls the regret lottery, and also retraining fan behavior in light of stuff like more on NBA fans running on the court and stuff. Uh, He's a graduate of the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania with a Bachelor of Science in Economics, got his MBA from Duke. His focus, which is behavioral psychology, is basically a way of understanding why people make the decisions they make and react to things in a certain way. Um, I always just learn a ton from talking to him. So you guys are going to love this. It's Kevin Brilliant. That's what she said. 
Some of you may remember when Kevin Brilliant was on the podcast the first time. And if you didn't hear it, I highly recommend you go back and listen to that first. It was in 2017. If you just Google Sarah Spain, Kevin Brilliant, it will come up. And so many fasting things uh, came out of that conversation. But I'll recap just briefly that I, I first heard Kevin speak at a global sports management summit in Chicago. And I was so fascinated about how he applied behavioral psychology to the sports world. Um, after going to Wharton School um, at University of Pennsylvania, getting a bachelor in, in economics and then getting an MBA from Duke, he worked in a lab for a man named Dan Ariely and figured out all the applications of behavioral economics and sports, which is basically uh, understanding how non-conscious biases and hidden forces shape our decision-making, shape our judgment, how much of our decision-making actually happens at a non-conscious level, and how understanding how that works can help people move us into the decisions that they want us to make or better set us up to make decisions that are beneficial to their business or in the case of uh, Kevin, the Bulls. Started with the Bulls in 2015 as now the Director of Business Strategy and Analytics, combining all of that behavioral science, analytics, and fan engagement to help make decisions around how many hats you see when you go to make a purchase. What does the line look like when you're waiting for concessions? Do they give you a gift when you get there or when you leave? All sorts of things that affect your experience with the team and hopefully make you want to come back. Um, I was just listening to uh, a, a speech you were giving, Kevin, in the last couple of years, and you mentioned something that made me think of something I never asked you uh, the first time you were on. And it was you describing how you pitched to Dan Ariely, this famous guy at Duke, why you should be a part of his lab, despite him not having sports related folks uh, in in this special you know, sort of lab and and group. And I loved how you described both the stadium and the decision-making of fans as a prime area for research. Can you get into that? Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. It's great to be back. I enjoyed yeah. it the last time we did it. So yeah. So going back, this was, I guess, seven or eight years now. Uh, when I first pitched Dan on joining his lab, you know, Dan is not a sports guy, as I mentioned, and everyone else in his lab is a PhD. And so the way I framed it to him is I said, what we know from your research, other folks' research, et cetera, is that human beings are irrational or biased in our decision-making to begin with. And what we know from neuroscience is that when people are in an emotionally heightened state, we're even more irrational in the choices we make. Well, sports, politics, and religion for me are sort of the big three in hyper-emotional investment, identity-level construction, right? So when I framed it to him, I said, I think it's even more important to, to study fandom through the lens of behavioral science, given the emotional nature of fandom. Yeah. And that's so true. We always ask why fans are such morons in general. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's and you're right. It's not just um, that dedication to something, but actual identity. And we've learned that so many times that people identify as mm -hmm. the fans that they root for. That's why they say we, even when they know they're not playing for the team and they don't work for the team. Well, Robert Cialdini did a lot of research on this. He's one of my favorite guys. He wrote Influence, among others. Uh, he's sort of the OG in social science. He's a researcher from Arizona State who went undercover basically with 30 sales-related jobs, uh, everything from selling used cars to trying to get people to donate to causes overseas, things like that. And his goal was to study the influence tactics that people in the field were using, right? So he came up with six main ones. So what he actually studied on college campuses was the incidence rate of students wearing jerseys for their favorite team or using statements like we, us versus them, they, et cetera, following a win versus a loss. And what he mm -hmm. found was there was a huge spike in not only tribal color wearing, et cetera, and we talking following a win, but there was also a distancing from the team. <laughs> totally. 
Because I mean, it's, it's unpleasant, right? Like when you see your favorite team lose, it's harder to watch sports center that night. In fact, in a lot of cases, you just turn it off. You don't want to be exposed to it. Right. Yeah. It's funny. I just got a Facebook memory pop up. You know how it says like seven years ago, you were doing this or whatever else. Yeah. And it said, uh, it was basically me bemoaning the fact that I had to go into the radio station in Chicago and give updates on the Blackhawks season ending. And if yeah. not for that job, I would not be opening or clicking a single thing relating to hockey for several days because I was so depressed that they'd gotten bounced from the playoffs. So that's totally accurate. You also uh, said something to Dan Ariely uh, about the lab, about the stadium being essentially a Petri dish. <laughs> I think what I said was a living, breathing laboratory through which to understand human behavior. Sure, that's a nicer way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's true in a lot of ways, right? You have people who are showing up at a dedicated time for a dedicated event, and there are certain behaviors that happen throughout the event that are fairly predictable, right? So anything from ordering concessions to engaging with things on screen, um, going and visiting the team store. And what you can do is you can start to figure out what things might drive human behavior. And so, for example, one of the things that we'll be working on in the future that I think is a really interesting application of behavioral science a few years ago, we did sort of an overhaul in the benefits that we were giving to season ticket holders. Just how do you create a better experience? Everything we know about behavioral science, the five love languages, which I think we talked about, segmentation, understanding people come to the stadium for different needs, their benefits that they're seeking are very different. And so we took a refreshed look at what we were giving people. And one of the things we gave them, which we thought was really nice, was a credit for you know, $100, $150 to the team store at the beginning of the season. It was like a starter kit we were giving people. It was part of a number of things we gave them. But we thought, hey, why not get yourself outfitted for the season, get excited, et cetera. Now, at the end of the season, when we look back, we found out that only a fraction of our season ticket holders had spent their free money at Weird. the team store. Right? Like, what an interesting problem from a human behavior perspective, because we know these people are all huge fans of the team. We know most of them do buy apparel, right? And we gave them this great benefit, which was free money. And it's an ironic problem to have that you are having trouble getting people to spend this free money, but that is a problem for businesses. And so that's what we try to figure out, right? It's like, what are the barriers and frictions that are preventing people from taking actions that you know would be in their best interest or you know they would enjoy, but there's something that's limiting them from doing that thing. And so that's what I mean when I talk about a stadium is understanding like, how do you remove those pain points from people so they can have a better experience? We talked about this last time with a timeshare connected to the Bulls and the fact that people needed to feel like they earned a great deal. So instead of paying less for a timeshare, that was a great deal. That was great because the place just needed you to get to the resort, see how great it was and want to come back. But the fans didn't see that. And so you ended up making them fill out a survey and paying more. And then more of them were willing to engage with this timeshare, having spent money and labor. Then yeah. had you made it easier for them to get because in their mind, they couldn't really reconcile the idea that something was worth it if it was that good of a deal. Um, did you ever figure out the case of why the fans weren't using their free money at the store? No. So that's that's something that just happened the season before COVID. So that's something we're going to be working on in, in the future. I have a number of different ideas. I think one experiment that sort of stands out for me, and I don't know whether we'll do this or not, but Dan Ariely used this when he was trying to help people save more for their retirement accounts. And he tried a number of different interventions. So one was like a text message from your future self congratulating you on having saved. Another version was a text message from your kids trying to invoke like a higher goal for yourself than just your individual savings, et cetera. What he found that was the most effective, and this was his favorite experiment, what he found is that giving people a gold coin that had the number of days of the month and you could scratch off the mm -hmm. day every time you made a deposit was the most effective intervention. 
And the reason is because it was highly salient for people. It was a reminder, a visual cue every day of an object that had intrinsic value to them that was enough to prompt their future behavior. So I started thinking, I wonder how different it would be if instead of giving people free money on their app, for example, whether people would value it more if we gave them some sort of token that could be redeemed for anything in the team store, right? Like that's just borrowing from another experiment I've seen, but started raising interesting thoughts about how we might go about this differently in a way that might make people more excited to take advantage of the benefit. Right. Or, or even maybe a waterfall situation where instead of getting everything at once when you become a season ticket holder and then forgetting what those elements are, this this far into the season, you get another benefit and this far into the season, you get another benefit. So it's like top of mind instead of that's interesting to think about. Um, well, I, I think to your point, like the timing and sequencing of how you disseminate benefits and how you create experiences for people is hyper important. So one of the most interesting things that I remember reading over the last couple of years is they did a study on dropout rates in college and they were looking for different factors that would help administrators predict who were at risk students. And they identified a bunch of the factors that you would think would be predictive of dropout rates. But one of the surprising ones was the moment in time or how soon relative to when the student is admitted, an administrator first makes contact with that student is highly predictive of whether they'll continue through with their education. The idea being that if you get them early and you get them involved and you get them onboarded properly, they're far more likely to continue. If you let them slip through the cracks, they're far more likely to disconnect and eventually drop out. Right. And so we started thinking about that a lot in terms of our rookie retention, right? In terms of onboarding people who have just joined us from a membership standpoint, what are we doing from outreach standpoint, from our service team, from other aspects of the other people in the organization to help make them feel special and part of the family right away? Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, that totally makes sense to the idea that someone noticed that you're not there and cares will make you want to be engaged in the situation much more than if you're gone for a while and no one seems to have any any interest in whether you've, you've showed up or not. Um, yeah, by the way, as a quick side note, you mentioned the Global Sports Management Summit that we met at. Um, I remember the first thing you said to me, actually, because I was in the middle of presenting. Uh, I was telling a story about something and I was going to reference an experiment and it was kind of like a throwaway transition line. You were sitting in the front row. And I basically said, I meant to say like this experiment has actually been validated in the field, like that would have been the precise language. But what I ended up saying is, and this is actually true. And without <laughs> missing a beat, you said to me in front of 50 people, as opposed to the rest of the stuff you're saying, and I was like, oh man, Sarah, just killing me that, out of the game. That checks out. I do not remember that, but I have zero doubt that I did that. That sounds 100% on brand. Well, I, um, I, I, never told you, I never told you what happened after that. So I was walking out, we were at the Peninsula Hotel, which is a really nice hotel in Chicago. And I was walking out with uh, my girlfriend at the time, now wife, and my parents had come down as well. So I was in the elevator with my mom and my wife. And they were telling me like, oh, it was so great. Like you did wonderful. And after podcast or speaking engagements, I go back through sort of like an athlete, like I run through the game tape and right. I'm pretty critical of stuff I wish I would have said. Or So I'm like, okay, like it's not false modesty. I'm like, nah, this could have gone better, et cetera. From the corner of the elevator, I just hear, take the win. And I look up and it's Jamie Lee Curtis. <laughs> I was like, what? And she was like, just take the win. I was like, That's okay. Great. That's great. I love advice. that. I love yeah. that. Um, yeah. I mean, I was blown away and I blame you in part, along with a couple <laughs> other guests I've had for my increasing fascination with just um, human behavior. And a lot of, I went back and listened to our old conversation and I noted some of the things that you mentioned that I had then now since read in books, like The Power of Habit and other books that I've picked up, yeah. getting more and more interested in stuff like that. And one of those is, of course, 
the idea for dieting or changing a habit of crossing something off on a calendar is one of the strongest way to get people to stick with something, whether it's walking every day, not smoking, because you see the streak end and it's a visual mm -hmm. failure that otherwise you can kind of skip over. Um, okay. So let's get into some of the things do, that have- Do we ever talk, by the way, do we ever talk about regret lotteries? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And, yeah, and so how we, we very much feel- um, losses much more significantly than equivalent gains. It came into mm -hmm. it came into conversation around serpentine lines versus individual, where as soon as we think that we got in the wrong line, that feels so much worse than anything we ever feel good about when we when we got in the quote unquote good line and move faster than the people next to us. Yeah, I mean that was a big one. The the hallmark study about regret lotteries, which I think is really interesting. You mentioned streaks and, and incentivizing people to continue is they've used regret lotteries to basically incentivize people to do things like take heart medication, for instance. I think I mentioned that with Warfarin last time, but you could do the same thing in context with rewarding people for showing up to a consecutive number of games where the number of entries into a lottery, for instance, could be you know, multiplied by a factor of X depending on what your streak is, and it continues to grow the more you attend. So creating this ecosystem of almost a gamified environment where you're incenting the right behaviors, but also behaviors that people enjoy taking. I think it's sort of the end goal of all of this. Totally. I actually heard you talking about the heart medicine on a, on a different uh, thing, but it wasn't on this podcast. But basically, it's something that people should want to do anyway. And it's a massive cost to the medicinal industry. And, and uh, in order to get people to do it, they were they were suggesting that every time you took your pill, you were entered in a lottery and they would actually post whether someone was eligible to win when their name had been pulled based on whether they took their pill. And so instead of the idea of winning the money inspiring people, it was the pang of regret that they might get chosen and not be eligible. And so it, that totally uh, stacks up to that point of uh, the feeling of regret being much stronger than than the, you know, uh, feeling of, of wins that were that were equal to that. So yeah, that's exactly right. And I mean, the premise is you shouldn't need extra incentive to take your heart medication, right? Right? Like that should pretty much be a layup. But that's just not how human beings behave. And so again, what they found is that with this very simple change in incentive playing off the idea of regret, and again, the, the total value of the lottery was something nominal amount of money, like $5. But it completely changed people's behavior. And that experiment always stuck with me. They do that in Peloton too. I don't know if you have a Peloton, but I have a Peloton and they will warn you, you know, oh, we're showing the camera. It's right behind you. Perfect. <laughs> they will, they will warn you like work out today to keep your streak going. Right. Yeah. If you have a every week or every day or whatever. And then, you know, I, I went on vacation and I came back and the bike said, get off to a good start. And I was like, oh, I lost my streak. <laughs> you know, normally you'd get on and they would say ride today to keep your streak. And I was like, oh, it's over. Yeah. Gotta start over. So let's talk about some of the things that have changed since you were here a couple of years ago, and namely uh, of global pandemic uh, that changed everything. Um, you were recently at Disney. I, I don't know if it was Disney World or Disneyland, but you Animal were Kingdom. Animal Kingdom. Okay. And you were studying some of the signing and messaging and the ways that Disney was reacting to the return of fans to the to the theme parks. Um, first, why did you choose Disney? And and then tell us some of the things you learned from from your trip. Yeah. So you and I chatted about it last time. I, I think I'd mentioned that Disney is one of my favorite companies. I know you work for Disney, but that's just- Yeah, I appreciate that. Out. Checks yeah. in the mail. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the reason that I went to Disney, and number one, I happened to be visiting my folks in Florida at the time, which is sort of a silver lining of, of this very weird period in our lives. 
Um, but the reason I went there is that Disney, not only are they a world-class company and spend a lot of time and resources thinking about the guest experience, but they've also had a chance to iterate multiple times across theme parks that have come back online across the world. So I think Disney Singapore might've been the first one to come back online, if I remember correctly. Then they've opened a couple others before they had a chance to open the ones here in the States. And because of that, I knew they had a chance to see what worked and what didn't to have really smart, dedicated people iterate on those things and work through problems that we just simply wouldn't have a chance to do ourselves before we opened. I mean, that's why casinos launch like soft openings, right? Like Disney had effectively done that with different theme parks around the world. And so given the amount of time and thought that I knew went into it, I thought they'd be a great company to learn from in terms of how they're adjusting to this new normal. And so I got a chance to go there uh, through a friend of a friend um, from the Bulls. And they basically just let me into the park for three hours. And I sort of wandered around documenting and putting together a bit of a photo diary for folks who from the industry would love to have done this themselves, but given the nature of a global pandemic, just couldn't travel. And so number one, attending a theme park at 30% capacity is fantastic. I, got, I know. It's there like the no dream. You always want like the, the day you would hear about where some rich person would buy out the park for their kid for their birthday or like your company would have it for the day and you just like sprint around doing everything. Yeah. Or Clark Griswold at the end of vacation. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it was a great experience overall. And I was looking around because coming back at that moment in time, this was in late January, right? So we were sort of starting to see a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel, but it certainly is not where we are today, which is that things are opening back up now, right? Like in January, it was just not that open for most places in the country. And so number one, the first thing I was looking for is, are people even able to have a normal, relaxed, good time in this type of environment? And the answer is yes. And so one of the first things that I saw, which I thought was amazing when I walked in, was there was a family wearing these social Disneying shirts. Right, so they had Minnie Mouse wearing a mask. I don't think Disney had produced them. I think they had gotten them on like Etsy or some online store, but they had clearly leaned in. And for this family, right, they were ready to get back to normal. And so I thought that was my first observation is that bringing people back amidst the global pandemic is different for sure, but it is possible. Um, and that was really encouraging. And then Disney did a bunch of stuff that I thought was really important. Uh, number one, they nailed their first impression optimization. So right from the start, they had people who I termed friendly authorities. So this person happened to be a security <laughs> guard, but it need not be. It could just be anybody who's recognized as speaking for Disney, in, or in our case, the Bulls. They had someone standing outside who was hooked up to a mobile PA system and in very clear, friendly tones was welcoming people back to the park, right? And I think that set the stage for a lot of people, right? Instead of having someone who was just directing traffic, so to speak, or shouting out instructions, you had people really creating a strong first impression at Disney. They did a great job, by the way, investing in technology like metal scanning, ticket scanning, all that stuff to make it easy and frictionless to get through upon point of entry so it wasn't overwhelming. The way they did temperature checks was in a very open air tent, right? They had a process that was pretty nailed down. But I thought going in, I didn't know what to expect, which is why the first impression was so important. So that person had, wasn't saying, wear your mask, do this. That person no. was simply saying, oh my gosh, we're so happy to have you back. Yeah. And there might have been some things in there like, hey, it's just a friendly reminder. Like, you know, we're expecting guests to wear masks in their park. I don't exactly remember what he said, but my takeaway, the feeling, right? Like Maya Angelou famous, famously said, long after people remember what you said, they remember how you made them feel. I just remember this guy made me feel like it was going to be okay. Like it was Got normal it. that people were on top of it, that safety was put in place for our benefit, et cetera. Got it. Um, so that was something that I thought they did. Another thing that was a pretty big um change from before was the amount of investment in mobile ordering. 
So that was one of the things coming out of this, given contactless and the need to be able to efficiently order without congregating people in lines, that was a pretty obvious outcome. I think for companies, the thing is the extent to which you want to lean into it, right? So do you want to make it an option for people or do you want to make it almost mandatory and really use this as a catalytic event to try to change behavior? And I think that's what Disney saw. I did a little interviewing from folks who were working in the concessions area of Animal Kingdom. And I found out that I think pre-pandemic, they were averaging as a percentage of all orders placed on mobile. It was somewhere in the teens. And coming out of the pandemic, I think it was somewhere in like the 80s, mm-hmm. right? Those are rough numbers. I don't work there. But like order of magnitude, there was a huge spike in the number of people using mobile ordering. And I think that was a function of consumer need, first and foremost. But I also think Disney did a great job of making it really easy and simple for fans to follow. So one of the things I observed in the park, and this is not surprising because Disney needs to create signage that kids can understand because that's a core part of their audience. So they're very good at laying out things in a very step one, step two, step three way. Like this will change colors to purple when your order is ready. You will stand here, et cetera. It's just very easy to follow. And I think that helped lower the barrier to entry for people who are less tech savvy. Yeah. You also talked about the signage and the way that they... Mm -hmm got you to read something about COVID, but do it in a way that was relaxing. Yeah. So I thought this was fascinating. This was a breakthrough that happened for me at like 1.30 in the morning that night as I was looking <laughs> through the photos. And I realized that all of the COVID safety signage I had on my phone looked exactly like Disney's relaxation station sign. And it was this big breakthrough, right? So green color psychology, owing to its connection to nature, is associated with like good luck, tranquility, peacefulness, and health, Right. The relaxation station sign was designed in a very green color palette because it pairs very well with relaxation, right? It was amazing to see that all of their COVID safety sign looked and felt like the relaxation station sign. And the idea is that Disney wants people to have the right information to be sure, but they understand that it's just as important how that makes people feel, right? Disney's in the business of emotion and so is sports, right? That's really the end game for everything. And so understanding that, they designed their signage in a way that was both informative, but also understood the emotional consumer response. Now, this is part of a larger concept called consumer neuroscience. And so as I looked around the park, I saw a number of different instances where Disney had perfectly paired color and word choice to elicit the intended effect. So one example, for, for instance, was their bathroom signage, which was done in a color called Happy Yellow, um, that said, enjoy our beautiful restrooms. Right. It was a big sign hanging out there. I actually think that's a really great idea that sports teams could borrow. I think, number one, it enhances the credit people give you for having clean restrooms by calling attention to it. But two, it forces you to deliver on that promise. Right. Sort of a burn the boat situation. So I was sharing this insight. And by the way, I think the reason that this was particularly important for the Bulls is our color palette is black and red, which is a great color palette for excitement right? Also aggression, incidentally. That's why Phil Mickelson wears black polo shirts when he's trailing in majors on Sundays. He's actually talked about how it's priming his brain to be in a more aggressive state. They've done similar studies on teams that wear black colored uniforms like the Oakland Raiders, and they tend to draw more personal foul penalties than their opponents, right? Over the course of a season, right? Color psychology matters. And so I was sharing this around with some folks in sports on a a cross-sport call, And one of the teams that has a color palette that's orange and black or yellow and black said to me, uh, hey, we leaned into the whole yellow and black thing and created caution and warning messages for our stadium for COVID. Like, do you think that's a problem? I said, well, yeah, from a very early age, people are conditioned to look at caution and warning messages as you should not be here. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So as you think about designing with your fan in mind, is that the message you're trying to send people as you're welcoming people back amidst the global pandemic? Probably not. Yeah. I mean, if the sign says, you know, precipitous drop, then use black and yellow. Like you don't, <laughs> right. you don't want someone to die. But yeah, if the if sign the says, please fire. wear a mask or whatever, <laughs> and it's, you, we want you to be here, but you have to do this thing, then don't use such, you know, extreme colors that are going to in, make people feel uncomfortable. Exactly. Um, that's interesting. I had never really thought about that in terms of the color palette of a team, right? You want everything to match and look but you have to consider what those colors might be doing to people. Yeah. Now, I mean, it's worth experimenting with all this stuff, right? Like it's possible that because of the innate affinity that fans have for that team's yeah. color palette, that they might actually sort of get away with it, so to speak. Or, you know, it might be a situation where it's quote unquote hiding in plain sight, right. where it's just blending with the other message, but that's not really accomplishing the goal either, right? Your goal is to communicate the information in a way that draws people's attention, but you also want them to feel good about it as they're digesting it. Yeah. Um, I wonder if a team that's ever been heavily penalized has considered changing uh, jersey colors to, to get them better in line. So I haven't heard that, but what there are some studies popping up. There's a great book called Drunk Tank Pink uh, by Adam Alter. And what he did, it's basically named after the study, which was that they tend to paint their drunk tanks the color pink. <laughs> And what they've done is they've done studies with like the world's strongest man competition where people are throwing like barrels of ale over giant bars and things like pulling monster trucks, et cetera. And after a minute of priming their brain with this color pink, they're unable to perform even the most basic strength competition tasks. And so when you look around recently, there have been a number of locker rooms and college sports and other things that have been painted certain colors that I think have actually been outlawed specifically because of this reason, right? It's like they would people- paint the opposing team's locker room pink? Exactly. Yep. And I think that like what they're figuring out is that that's a competitive disadvantage for the other team. And that's just not something that they're going to open the door to. But it's a fascinating study in psychology. Yeah. It's also fascinating considering the application of that color to girls and women throughout life and whether that's negatively affecting us uh, in terms of our association or if it only does so if you are in conflict with the idea of what it stands for, right? If you consider yourself an alpha male and then see the pink, does it then dilute your powers? But if you're a woman, you're like, yeah, this feels fine. Well, I I think it has to come back to the associations that society has built into it because it's interesting. I I forget where I read this, but about a hundred years ago, like around 1900, pink was the color that little boys were put in when they were Mm -hmm. born and blue was the color that little girls were put in. And it flipped somewhere over time. So it can't, I guess, be the color itself so much as what society is imbued in those associations. Which actually brings me to the next question. I'm kind of curious how often the work of behavioral psychology and and human behavior is, um, is affected by the society or country or lifestyle in which the study occurs. Are there things that you say sort of are factual that in another country or place would not apply? Yeah, that's a good question, right? So I think there's a lot of study and research that have been done about individualistic societies that tend to be more Western in nature and then Eastern cultures, which are more communal. So a lot of times when like Dan Ariely and other stuff will run games about how people cooperate in teams to see whether they'll defect on their partner, basically take a chance to profit themselves at the expense of their partner, or they'll do what's in the best interest of the group you do find across cultures that there are differences in how people behave in those instances. There are other studies though that tend to be universal truths. 
So Dan did this really interesting study that he talked about on, I forget what the name of the documentary was, but it was based on the book, Bad Blood, uh, about Theranos. And so what he did was he measured people's willingness to cheat on little tests for money. So it was basically something as simple as, here's 20 questions, you get a dollar for every question you get right. But at the end of the exam, you get to tell your professor how many questions you got right. They never check it. And so it's basically a study in how much people are willing to cheat. And his finding across, across the globe, sort of regardless of country, was that everybody's willing to cheat a little bit, right? There's a point after which you can no longer feel good about yourself, but up to a certain point, people are willing to inflate their scores. What's interesting is that he found that under lie detection, so when he administered lie detection, if the people were playing for their own personal profit, the lie detector caught the lie. Hmm. If he changed it so that they were playing for their favorite charity, the lie went completely undetected. Whoa. Because the lie detector is set up to measure internal conflict. And when people were paying for charity, there was no conflict. Wow. That's wild. Yeah. Oh, I bet that spurred a whole lot of other studies. Yeah. He's done a lot of fascinating work in, in that area. We'll get right back to the interview. But first, what is your favorite word? Conflate. Conflate. To combine into one, as in two or more texts or ideas or something, but often used in the negative sense, as in to confuse two disparate things. From the mid-15th century, actually uh, the obsolete, uh, it's now obsolete, but the former sense was to mold or cast from molten metal, from the Latin, to blow up, kindle, light, bring together, to melt together. But then uh, around 1600, it became to bring together from various sources. Um, if I can guess at why this is your favorite word, it's probably that sort of negative sense of confusing two disparate things. Because I'm guessing that, you know, psychology can sort of feel more abstract than scientific, even if it's based in science and research. So you need clarity of language and your approach is really important so that people don't conflate anecdotal experiences with actual psychological research. Like, I'm guessing that there's a lot of conflating going on in the psych and behavioral science world. So that explains that. Speaking of great words. You're going to learn today. The word of the week is avocado. Uh-huh. Since talking to Kevin Brilliant always makes me look at things in a totally different way, even things I've thought of a million times, I thought I would blow your mind with a word that we all know, but that has a very interesting etymology. Okay, so avocados were believed to be discovered around 500 B.C. in Mesoamerica, so Mexico and Central America, by the Aztecs. And I'm going to get this pronunciation wrong, but they named avocados ahuacatl, A-H-U-A-C-A-T-L, ahuacatl, which directly translates to testicle. That's right, testicle. Perhaps because of the shape and texture and that they grew in pairs. When the Spanish arrived, they changed that Aztec word into aguacate, and it lost its tie to testes. But we, you and me and everyone listening and everyone who knows this already, can now walk around the world knowing that avocados are testicles. Delicious, fruity. Yes, it's a fruit. Delicious, fruity testicles. And so, in a sentence, Kevin fell face first into the guacamole after an errant pass from Bob hit him right in the avocados. Now let's get back to the interview. The idea of it sort of changing over time is a fascinating one to me, too. And I, I wonder whether 
there are long held beliefs that in recent years, because of big changes technologically or societally or otherwise have had to be revisited and, and changed. Yeah. Like what would be a good example of that? I don't know. I'm that's what I'm, I'm I'm wondering if there's something that people used to always think and because of the nature of our lifestyle being so different like th there's so many studies now. I think it was Sebastian Junger who wrote about like tribes and basically yeah, the tribes idea, and war. Yeah, the idea that like back in the day when our the people around us were so such a limited number, we were able mm -hmm. to function because that's how many people you can keep connected to and and whatever and that we're not really made as humans to exist in the way that we do now where we can be connected to thousands of people around the world and i yeah. wonder if our changing lifestyle in terms of working from home or ai doing things or not moving our bodies as often or communicating you know there's a lot of studies there's a, a book by aziz ansari and a and a uh, like a romance and dating expert um called modern love and it talked about how people's satisfaction with their dating back in the old days was based on the idea of limited choice. So you would mm -hmm. like marry the grandkid of the person who lived in the same building or like the fr the family friend at the Jewish center or whatever. And now because people have access to humans around the world, there's a deep dissatisfaction of not finding, quote unquote, your person or soulmate or the perfect thing because the expectation is they must be out there and you can find them. Whereas choices were so limited before that, but they would do studies and the people would be in their 60s and still married and talk about how happy they were, even though their pool was tiny. And yeah. so much of it was expectation. I just wonder if our life, our lifestyles are changing enough for some of the long held beliefs to have to be revisited. Yeah, I think on that topic, there's a lot of research that's been done about the impact of social media on people's health and wellness. Yeah. And I think what they're finding is that the most avid users of some of these platforms like Facebook and Instagram actually experience the highest incidence of divorce because you're basically looking at a manufactured version of people's lives mm -hmm. and you're creating that counterfactual that we talked about for yourself of their life looks so amazing, but you're just really catching a small snippet of it, right? Uh, yeah, I, to your point about changing global behaviors as a result of COVID and other things, I think one of the things you see in post-industrialized nations, so nations whose economies are taking off, is that while wealth is increasing, so is the rise in anxiety and depression and relatedly mm -hmm. suicide. Because as we move further away from those tribal unit based activities, which are very good, right? Like loneliness or said differently, belonging is one of sort of those core things that everybody needs. There have been a lot of studies about sort of human life and longevity and how the close relationships in your lives that you have actually is one of the best predictors of how long you live. And as we move into these post-industrialized or now sort of these separate um, spheres based on COVID, working from home, being more distant from our social networks, et cetera, or actual networks, um, I think you might see a rise in, in depression related to that. Yeah. I think one of the interesting things that there's a great book called Bowling Alone, and it basically charts the number of people who are involved in organizations in America over the 19th century. And what it found was that the apex of people joining these groups was post-World War II, right? Not surprising. There was a huge shock to the system the world was trying to heal, right? People were seeking out these moments of engagement with the people in their networks. And then from there, it declined decade over decade to the point that we're now more isolated than ever. I will be very interested to see if post COVID people start coming back together in a way that they hadn't for a very long time. Yeah, everyone's talking about the roaring 2020s, 
Mm -hmm. Right. And is this going to be post pandemic similar to the way it was in the 20s? And that's why there was that explosion. So speaking of that, the, the 20, but the 20s, by the way, was crazy, if you think about it. So there was a great book um, called The Great Influenza that I read in the middle of the pandemic about the Spanish flu. You had World War II from 1914 to 1918, right, which cost the lives of 20 million people. And then immediately following that, you had a global pandemic, which cost the lives of anywhere from 20 to 100 million people. Like just imagine living through that period in world history. Right. Yeah. I guess it makes us feel less sorry for ourselves right now. Right. We only got we only got one part of that. But it is kind of there are so many conversations right now about what this will look like 20 years from now when people talk about 2020. What mm -hmm. will they talk about and how will it affect? And then what will we know by then about how it actually changed things? And that's what I wanted to talk to you about. It, there's this idea of, of innovation through restriction. These things mm -hmm. that change because they're required and then you discover that you prefer them to the way you used to do things or that they are a better choice now knowing what fans have experienced and gone through. And obviously mobile ordering is a huge one of those. I went to the Cubs game for the first time um, a couple weeks ago and I went up to, to order food and the guy was like just staring at me. He's like, oh, yeah, you go over there and you fill out the thing and then you figure out where to pick it up. And I was like, oh. Okay, trying to figure it out. And I'm very technologically savvy and it wasn't too tricky, but it was like, oh, I've I've been gone for a while. They just mm -hmm. do this now all the time. Um, the Red Stars, the soccer team I'm co-owner of, we're working on our app being able to do all of that stuff from, from your seat, get merchandise that you want to buy, get your, your food and your drink that you want to buy, all of it done without ever leaving your seat. And then when it's ready, you go get it. Um, what are some of the other things that with the Bulls you looked at during that time when there were no fans allowed, when the team was in the bubble? Uh, what were the biggest concerns that you had to figure out? Yeah, I, so I guess there's a couple different ways to answer that. Number one is I think the work from home model is one of the biggest disruptions to happen to sports in quite a long time. Um, the idea being that, you know, we've and other sports teams have looked at this, too. But if you look at where your season ticket holders historically come from, it's people who live near highways because it makes or near the stadium. Right. Whatever makes the commuting easier to get to you makes sense. Now you have a model where people are working from home more than ever before. So McKinsey just came out recently with a study that said in America, and this is true globally as well, but in America, roughly a third of our workforce would prefer to work from home all five days a week. Mm -hmm. right? Almost two thirds of the American workforce would prefer to work from home three or more days going forward. Right? That's a massive disruption in terms of consumer behavior. I was talking to my stylist the other day when I was getting a haircut and I asked her, have you seen anything in your business because you've come online before us that might help inform what I'm thinking in my business? And she said, yeah, and this is a very young millennials, 20s, 30s areas. And she said, it used to be that Saturday was the biggest day of the week for us. She said, now it's a ghost town. She said, what we're finding is that millennials are figuring out ways to get these life maintenance things done during the week. And they're reserving their weekends for more pleasure-based activities. Mm -hmm. Right now, if that's true, that's a major disruption to the way people have consumed different products, almost moving in the direction potentially of the casino model where weekends fuel most of their business, Right. Figuring out how that change is going to impact consumer behavior, I think, is one of the most important things to come out of COVID. Um, the other thing that I think I'm spending a lot of time thinking about is how to retrain behaviors. So one of my favorite guys in the behavioral science space is BJ Fogg out of Stanford. He wrote the book Tiny Habits. I highly recommend it. I have it. I have. I just started it. Okay. Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, he, he's been a behavioral science guru for 10 years now, finally wrote a great book on it. Uh, and his basic framework is behavior equals motivation plus ability plus prompt. 
And his premise is that motivation can be tricky, right? That's a much longer term marketing effort. You can use sort of short term things, but they don't stick, right? It's just a much larger endeavor. But ability, making something easier for someone to do, so removing frictions and barriers, and prompt, reminding them at the right moment in time, is going to be essential. Um, in my own experience, and I think I shared this on a, uh, another podcast, but um, I really wanted to watch the NBA Finals last year when they were in the bubble, but I kept forgetting what time the games were on. And the only way I'd remember is when my phone notified me that the game was starting, I had alerts set on, right? We're going to have to rethink about how to train consumers in their behaviors and provide assistance because everything is new and it's been disrupted. Yeah, it's fascinating from my perspective, talking about it throughout last year. I was doing two to three hours of radio every single night during the pandemic when there was no sports and then NWSL came back and racing came back and then we sort of added them all on. And what we saw by the end of the season was that WNBA and NWSL experienced great ratings and great interest because they were things that people already had to go looking for. So the passionate people knew that they were a little tougher to find because sometimes ESPN2, sometimes ESPN+, sometimes you know Paramount+, Plus, but also that people's habits were disrupted. So they were trying new things and they happened upon these women's sports and loved them and kept coming back. And the ratings for all the men's sports were down. The things that were habit for people and they were so used to having a constant memory of just walking around, whether that's a billboard or a commercial or whatever, um, because they had moved in terms of time or the Masters or the Kentucky mm -hmm. Derby were different times of year. They weren't part of people's process anymore. And they sort of fell by the wayside. I wonder how you're addressing that, because to your point, season ticket holders might change because they're so used to being at home now and they're not on the road for work. So the idea of getting and going to games feels different or they're not nearby, you know, and going after work or a habit like coming home from the office, sitting down on the couch, turning on the TV and watching the Bulls versus, well, you've already been home all day and maybe you stopped work an hour early to catch that Netflix show you were binging. And now you're watching that straight through and you forgot there was even a game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's something we're spending a lot of time thinking about now and it's actually still changing sort of under our feet as we figure out the full impact of the pandemic. I think for me, it's a lot about figuring out how to meet people where they are. So understanding sort of their day-to-day -day journey and the moments that matter to them throughout that journey and then figuring out how a brand like the Bulls or any other brand can add positive value in those moments. So one study that I remember reading about was McDonald's, for instance. They did a study on morning commuters. And what they found is that people who are commuting to work in heavy traffic like to have a breakfast shake that they can drink on their way to work or coffee or something they can hold because it gives them something to do while they're waiting in traffic, right? And so what they did is they rebranded their smoothie line or their milkshake line, basically, to be breakfast-flavored smoothies. Mm. And their sales went up by like 500% because they figured out exactly how to meet people where they were in their moment of need. So I think understanding the journey of people's lives and how we can plug into that is sort of the most important thing coming out of it. 100%. You, you, you mentioned moments a couple of times. That feels like mm -hmm. a word that's tip of the tongue. Yeah, that's a huge thing for us. That's been one of the core pillars of how we've done our guest service program over the last five or six years. Jackie Iorio and her team are fantastic. They do a wonderful job. We've worked really closely with them. One of the books that we rely on really heavily is called The Power of Moments by Chip and Dan Heath. Um, they also wrote Made to Stick, among other books. And in it, their premise is basically that companies focus a lot of time and effort trying to fix the squeaky wheels 
when in reality, it's the moments that matter to people, the ones that stand out that end up shaping how they remember their experience. And it's related it's very kind of like close. peak end, right? I was just going to say that. Yeah. Yep. That's exactly right. So we actually deconstructed it. And what we teach our sales folks or our service folks rather is like focus on the peaks and focus on the end, right? Because those are the two things that disproportionately shape people's experience. We found one year with a sponsorship summit we run every year and we do a great job bringing in speakers and having it catered, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We found that the number one most talked about thing one year in the post event survey was the surprise taco truck we had waiting for people <laughs> after the event, right? The peak end rule, that's what they remembered. Right. It was the last thing that happened. And so basically one of my favorite stories from this, and this is something that people can apply in their own jobs on day one, they talk about day one onboarding in companies, how it's reliably one of the few days in people's lives where everybody in their life is gonna ask them, how was your day today? Right. Wouldn't it be great if we did a better job of giving people stories that they're excited to share with people, which, by the way, is how we define a moment that matters internally is a story someone wants to share. What most companies end up doing, though, is they show the person to their desk, they hand them some HR forms and they say, we'll let you get settled. We don't want to overwhelm you on your right. first day. Right now, has anyone really ever raced home at the end of the first day <laughs> to tell people they let me get settled? Like, no, of course not. Right? Wouldn't it be better for the company, for the person, for retention, for marketing, et cetera, if you gave them a story they were excited to share? Right? And so that we focused a lot on that. And I think it's a really cool. Um, I shared this book with Michael Reinsdorf, our owner and team president, and he's really into all this stuff. And I found out about three weeks later that he had started calling rookie season ticket holders to make it more of a moment that mattered. For wow, that's such so a that great really idea. Cool. Totally. You mentioned retraining fan behavior. I don't know if you have a quick thought on all the morons that are fighting people and throwing things. <laughs> and like, because it's funny, a lot of people have just said, oh, people forgot how to be outside. And I kind of scoff at that. Am I being, am I, am I not taking seriously enough how some people may have been affected by not interacting in public? Is it possible yeah. <laughs> that they literally forgot that you're not allowed to run on the court or you shouldn't throw things? Yeah, that's such an interesting question. Um, I don't know, but it's worth studying. I mean, fan uh, behavior overall is, I think, an area that's ripe for study. I think you see a lot of it, especially in some of the European soccer leagues. Mm. I think they have long histories and traditions and stories, and all of it's wonderful, you know, except for the handful of things that get out of control. I think there's been some research in social science about how to create identities for different tribes that are based on um, upholding certain standards. Yeah. Right. So I think there was one famous study about how to protect an endangered species in, in a certain island. And what they did is they basically branded the island as like, we like take care of our own. We take care of our wildlife, et cetera. Actually, don't mess with Texas, if you've heard that phrase, right? right. That started as an anti-littering campaign. Like it literally meant don't mess up <laughs> Texas by littering, but they hit the psychology of how Texans feel so perfectly right. that it became like the slogan for the state. Yeah, that's fascinating and absolutely makes sense. And I would be interested in people who have a job like yours, who work for somewhere like the Sixers or the Phillies, where right? there's such a, a bad sort of association around Philly fans that I almost feel like there are those who get hyped up at an event or overserved, and then they want to lean into that. Well, this is what we're known for and everyone thinks that we're assholes. So I'm going to be that guy. And if you work for 
those teams, how are you trying to change the way they self-identify and, and lean into, we want to prove to people that we're not that way instead of having to deal with incidents over and over. I would imagine some of the teams, Utah is a great example. The Jazz have had so many incidents that have been public uh, of racist um, fans that they very clearly need to move past that and, and change people's perceptions of them. And I would imagine whoever's in your job there is being tasked with figuring out how to, you know, is it security? Is it messaging? You know, how are we how are we changing this behavior? Because it's it's so in the moment, right? You could mm -hmm. have security everywhere and they could still not stop someone from throwing a bottle. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a fascinating question. I think there's a lot that goes into the environment, the conditions that you create for people. I think people can be influenced by their surroundings in ways that right. go beyond what they're aware of, right? So creating the right environment that sends the right signals and cues. I think role modeling the right behavior and celebrating the success stories is a huge part of that. I forget which football coach it was. It might have been Bill Parcells or Tom Coughlin, but they talked about uh, how in a locker room you can pretty much divide people into thirds. You have the third people, a third of the people who are the leaders in the locker room. You have a third of the people who are the malcontents in the locker room, and your job is to make sure the middle third hangs around with the top third. Yep, that right? makes and sense. And it always made sense to me. And I think that that taps into psychology really well. And so I think to me, that's where I would start is role modeling the behavior of the people who are doing it the right way. They do that sometimes with something like a designated driver, right? If you're uh -huh. the designated driver for the group, you can show up somewhere and get a, a present or a gift to reward you for, for being responsible. Uh, we're almost out of time here. I have two more quick questions for you. Um, one is, uh, I know it's probably a bigger issue, but if you could, you know, shorten it up, fan segmentation of figuring out that the level of fandom, whether you're a, a diehard or a casual, is not necessarily statistically tied to your primary reason for going to a game. And how does the changing face of fandom, whether that's more women attending, um, that kind of thing, change how you how you then use those that information to market? Yeah. So, I mean, we went through this exercise a few years ago where we started looking at how people are trying to use our product or basically what are called benefits sought segmentation. And so this was at the time I called up a professor of mine, uh, Gavin Fitzsimmons at Duke, and I said, I want to do psychographic segmentation. He said, no, you don't. He said, psychographic segmentation implies that people have a fixed mindset. What you want to do is segmentation on the basis of benefits sought. So what benefits are people seeking from you in the moment in time they choose to engage? Understanding that people can move in and out of different segments depending on their user occasion. So one night, let's say I come with three of my buddies, we're lifelong Bulls fans. The way the team performs is the most important factor in terms of how I view my experience. I don't have kids, but say the next, say I did, the next night I come with my six-year-old, my nine-year-old, if they meet Benny and get a photo on the court and they're talking the whole ride home about what a great time they had, even if the Bulls lose by 40, I'm still upset about that, but my right. primary motivation has been satisfied, right? And so we started thinking about moving away from the one size fits all model of talking to generically Bulls fans and starting to figure out how to create different experiences for people. And the way I think about it is sort of like a printer metaphor, which is that it's the fan who decides what color they want to print in. It's our job to stock the printer with the right cartridges. And so in our context, that means creating opportunities for choose your own adventure. So if this is something that appeals to you, then great. But it's our job to signal through our communications, through the way we design creative, et cetera, who that event or that experience is meant for. And so for an example, 
a few years ago, I think this was three years ago, we did our first ever open practice and we invited fans in. We had a really nice event. Um, it was on Sunday, I think at noon. And so it had sent the signal to folks that this might be a kid friendly event. But when we planned it, we had also kept in mind the season ticket holders that really wanted to hear from basketball management. And so about halfway through the scrimmage, we stopped and we had a big panel with Michael Reinsdorf and our then front office talking about the state of the team, which was a mismatch for the kids who had showed up looking for a different experience. Well, fast forward a year later, and we had a segment in mind of fans that we were targeting for this event. And that was your X's and O's fans, right? The people who are willing to get into the minutia. They love the game of basketball, the coaching, the tips, et cetera. And so what we did is we designed all of our creative, our communication, et cetera, around that type of fan. And we ran the practice and the scrimmage exactly that way. And then we asked people afterwards, did this event meet your expectations based on the way we communicated beforehand? Well, 31 out of 32 people who responded to the survey said absolutely. And the score, like on a five-point scale, went up by a full point. It was interesting. The one person who said no said, I was expecting it to be more of like a team pep rally, which is what mm -hmm. we we're trying not to do. And he said, that's what I wanted, and, and I didn't get that, right? And it's a great illustration of what happens when you have people showing up for the right reasons, knowing what the event is about. They end up being very satisfied. Right. Or what can happen when you have mismatched expectations. Yeah, it is fascinating to consider that at any given time, the very same person could be showing up with different needs. You know, mm -hmm. coming with a bunch of friends, having a ton of drinks and having a blast versus taking a colleague or taking a business client or kids or whatever, and having to consider all of that in the same person instead of segmenting them um, as, as sort of a monolith. Uh, last question for you, because we have to run. Um, this is a larger, bigger picture. Were there <laughs> moments, uh, just knowing what you study and how you can't shut it off for work and in life, um, were there moments during the pandemic outside of sports that reactions matched or didn't match your expectations from the, the, the human beings on earth? Oh man, that's such a good question. Yeah, I guess there's a lot of stuff that goes into, I mean, the political response to a lot of stuff, right? Like was COVID a political thing? Like which side of the aisle did you trust? I think the more we study about tribalism and the more we understand about how political parties are divided into, like when you see people voting straight down a ticket or aligning with like 100% of the policies on one side, like the odds of you actually aligning with 100% right. of either party, is, it's astronomically small, right? So that tells us that people are just going along with their team. And I think what's really interesting is there was a lot of chatter uh, around like after the 2016 election about how people were quote unquote voting against their self-interest. And I think that's interesting, right? Going back to what Robert Cialdini was writing about with basking in reflected glory, being part of a winning team or tribe is an essential ingredient in human survival, right? When you look at sort of, there's a great book called The Rational Animal, where they go into the seven different evolutionary subselves or parts of our personality, speaking of segmentation, that we care about at any given point in time. The number one thing is self-preservation, so survival. Well, when you think back into tribal mode, the reason people joined up into tribes in the first place was protection, yeah. right? You were better served being as part of a tribe. And so there's intrinsic value to being part of a winning team still left over from the way our software was programmed from an evolutionary perspective. That's really hard to unwire. So when we say things like people are voting against their self-interest, 
that's not a completely accurate view of the situation because being part of a winning team is in a way your self-interest. And so that's where it gets very convoluted and, and very interesting to study from a behavioral standpoint. Yeah. But and- I guess, to answer your question, I was not surprised the way that that broke on party lines. Yeah. It is fascinating how you mentioned earlier, politics, religion, sports. We don't usually include sports in the conversation when we say things you're not supposed to bring up on a first date or bring up at Thanksgiving dinner, but they do elicit a lot of the same responses and the same anger and irrationality as those conversations around something like religion or politics. Um, I could talk to you forever, and now we're going to have to do a part three sometime. (laughs) So many other questions. Um, I might also have to hire you out to come talk to me about my Chicago Red Stars. I'm going to try to pick your brain on a whole different a whole different team um but thanks yeah, for hanging anytime. out I love you. so fascinating to hear from you um thanks so much for doing this again absolutely thanks sarah that's what she said oh yeah one more thing so this is usually where i'll tell you to read something listen to something uh i'll rant or rave about something uh you know sometimes complain sometimes uh, just lift up great work from people. Um, but this week it is the latest installment of my pride month series asking folks in the LGBTQIA community, what does pride mean to you? So here's the incredible Izzy Gutierrez, friend, colleague, former radio co-host of mine, current around the horn panelist with me. And Izzy is a very brave and honest and inspiring role model for gay men in sports media. Um, Came out later in life and really took us all along with him on the journey. Here's Izzy. Pride to me means comfort. It's comfort in knowing there are other people like me, and comfort in knowing that it's something that should be celebrated, not shamed. These are all thoughts of strength that never actually existed in me until I actually participated in a Pride event. I was 31 years old, I'd just come out to my friends and family just a few days earlier, and I was in San Francisco with the first person I'd ever dated. He later went on to be my husband and my ex-husband. And we were shirtless walking the streets of San Francisco. Uh, Just a month earlier, I would have been terrified to do anything of the sort. Um, Yet, you know, I was in a comfort zone like I'd never experienced before, and it was so welcomed and so freeing. And I knew that that feeling was so much better than the discomfort forced upon me, basically, uh, you know, throughout my first 31 years. And when I knew I could experience that feeling all the time, not just at Pride events, it opened up an entirely different world for me and it helped an entirely new confidence build that was never there before. Since then, Pride events have always felt super comfortable. It's a place where we can also sort of break through our comfort zone. Uh, For example, my partner Anthony, he's had some trouble being fully comfortable with his sexual identity, so he's used Pride events as a way to just push past that comfort zone and really feel what it's like to not hold back just because people think you're supposed to be in this particular lane. Um, Pride Month also happens to be in June, which is my birthday month. (laughs) And one of the most memorable days of my life was when marriage equality was passed. It was on my birthday, June 26th, and I was playing uh, in a flag football tournament in Chicago called the Pride Bowl. I'd seen the news on my phone um, and I was warming up and stuff. And then moments later, Uh, my then fiance, David, I saw him in the distance walking onto the fields and I raced over to him and jumped in his arms like a lame movie and told him all the news and told him how happy I was. And I don't think I'll ever, I know I'll never forget that moment. So overall, yeah, pride means comfort and it always just puts me in a happy place. 
You can always tweet me at Sarah Spain if you've got guest suggestions, questions, or more. You can leave me a dilemma. Definitely go to the iTunes or podcast app. It really helps me if you go there. Subscribe to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Rate it, please. Five stars, please. And leave me a review. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. That's what she said.